Hello, everybody, and welcome into episode number 109 of the Bible Reading Podcast. Today's big Bible questions are, can Christians drink wine and should Christians drink wine? So hello and happy Thursday to all of you. Today brings us to a controversial topic among modern Christians that is not very controversial in terms of the Bible, at least from a grammatical place. You'll notice that the question we're covering is phrased in two different ways. Can Christians drink wine and should Christians drink wine? There's a reason for this because each of the questions has a slightly different answer from the Bible. Today's Bible passages also include Leviticus 20, Psalms 25, Ecclesiastes 3, and 1 Timothy 5. The reason for the topic of wine is coming up uh, because of 1 Timothy 5, verse 23, where Paul gives the following word of advice to Timothy. Don't continue drinking only water, but use a little wine because of your stomach and frequent illnesses. Now, this is kind of an interesting passage, and it brings up a large amount of questions. First, and this seems kind of elementary, but it's worth grappling with. It's worth uh, kind of considering how we interpret the Bible. Is this a command to us or to Timothy or to both? And that's an excellent question to consider from the Word of God for any Bible passage. At the beginning of this chapter, for instance, Paul writes to Timothy, Don't rebuke an older man, but exhort him as a father, younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, and the younger women as sisters, with all purity. Now, is that a command only to Timothy, or is it a command to Christians only or to both? And I think, honestly, almost all Bible teachers would say both for those passages in 1 Timothy 5, 1 through 2. That is a command for Timothy, but it's also a command for us. We generally consider commands in the Word of God spoken authoritatively to individuals or churches. You know, for instance, a command of Jesus to Peter or a letter from Paul to the Ephesians, a letter from Peter, etc. We consider those commands to apply to all of us. However, there are some cases where commands in the scripture do not apply to all who read them. For instance, I don't believe 1 Timothy 4.12 is very applicable to senior saints, where it says, Don't let anyone despise your youth, but set an example for the believers in speech and conduct in life and love and faith and in purity. Likewise, 1 Peter 3.7 is a powerful and important passage, especially for me, but I don't think it's very binding or applicable to my eight-year-old daughter, where it says, Husbands, in the same way, live with your wives as an understanding in an understanding way, as with a weaker partner, showing them honor as co-heirs of the grace of life, so that your prayers will not be hindered. Ultimately, I don't think our focus passage, because of that, is a command for all people reading it that they must drink wine. I think it's a command to Timothy that because he's having some stomach difficulties, and it does say drink a little wine. So that's our first issue to discuss. This is not a blanket command to all Christians that you must drink wine. Now, our second question is a little bit more complex. And that question is, what does the Greek word for wine, which is oinos, actually mean? Does this word refer to intoxicating wine, or does it refer to new or unfermented or sweet wine? There are three basic views on the subject, and I'm not going to go terribly deep on all three of those views, but they are worth recounting because this is a debate in the body of Christ that has been going on for over a thousand years. So view number one. 
View number one is that oinos is usually or often unfermented slash sweet wine. In other words, it doesn't, the wine that Paul is telling Timothy to drink and the wine that Jesus made at the wedding in Cana were what we would call grape juice. Perhaps with, you know, a trace of alcohol or something like that, but not nearly enough to become intoxicated. Now, this view has been held by many people throughout church history, and you can find some very long arguments on the internet that seem to prove beyond a shadow of a doubt that it is the correct view until you actually research some of the other views. I do recall that Donald C. Stamps, the author of the study notes in one of my first ever study Bibles, brought for me by my wife when we were dating way back when I was in college, was very much in favor of this view. Now, I love Mr. Stamps and his notes, and they were very, very helpful. And I recall that he argued vociferously and uncompromisingly that oinos in the New Testament always meant unfermented wine, and that Jesus would never, ever make wine that could make somebody intoxicated. Now, this view is generally called the two-wine view, and it basically asserts, and this was Stamps' view, I mean, he would say not every instance of oinos is unfermented, but basically he and other holders of the two-wine view would say that when the New Testament is talking about oinos or wine in a negative way, it's talking about fermented wine. But when the Bible or the New Testament is talking about oinos in a positive way, such as like this passage to Timothy or the Last Supper when they drink the fruit of the vine or the wedding at Cana when Jesus turns the water to wine, that unfermented grape juice is in view. So the two-wine view says that oinos means alcoholic wine when something negative is said, and it means unfermented wine when something positive is said. So view number two is that oinos can indeed contain alcohol, but not in the same proportion as current wines, and certainly nowhere near as much of an ABV or a percentage of alcohol by volume as stronger drinks of modern times like vodka, whiskey, scotch, etc. Currently, our modern wines are usually around 12 to 14 percent ABV percentage of alcohol by volume, but they can be as long as uh, as low as four percent and get even a little higher than 14 percent. There's no way to be certain. I have read some research that seems to indicate that 1st century and Old Testament wine would probably be of a lower ABV than modern wine. Now, if this is the case, and it's kind of hard to be definitive if it is, then Paul's advice to Timothy would be about a weak wine compared to what we call wine today. Now, Charles Spurgeon and many, many others were strong proponents of this view. And this is what Spurgeon said one time when he was preaching about the uh, Jesus turning the water to wine. He said, you know the narrative. Jesus was at a wedding feast, and when the wine ran short, he provided for it right bountifully. I do not think that I should do any good if I were to enter upon the discussion as to what sort of wine our Lord Jesus made on this occasion. Well, he enters into the discussion anyway. He says, "It, it was wine, and I am quite sure it was very good wine, for he would produce nothing but the best. Was it wine such as men understand by that word now? It was wine, but there are very few people in this country who ever see, much less drink, any of that beverage. That which goes under the name of wine is not true wine, but a fiery, brandied concoction of which I feel sure that Jesus would not have tasted a drop. The firewaters and blazing spirits of modern wine manufacturers 
are very different articles from the juice of the grape, mildly exhilarating, which was the usual wine of more sober centuries. As to the wine such as is commonly used in the East, a person must drink inordinately before he would become intoxicated with it. It would be possible, says Spurgeon, for there were cases in which men were intoxicated with wine, but as a rule, intoxication was a rare vice in the Savior's times and in the preceding ages. Had our great exemplar, our great example, Jesus, in other words, lived under our present circumstances, says Spurgeon, surrounded by a sea of deadly drink which is ruining tens of thousands, I know how he would have acted. I am sure he would not have contributed by word or deed to the rivers of poisonous beverages in which bodies and souls are now being destroyed wholesale. Now, view number three is pretty simple, and that is basically that oinos or in, in the New Testament is practically the same as what we consider wine today. In other words, Jesus made something similar to the kind of wine you can buy in the store today, and Paul told Timothy to drink something similar to the kind of the wine that is sold today. Now, I believe view number one, the two-wine view, is that when the Bible talks about oinos in a negative sense, it's fermented wine. In a positive sense, it's unfermented wine. That view is held by many sober-minded and godly people who have seen the ills and harms of alcohol, and they want to protect as many people as possible from it. Unfortunately, I don't think the view holds up to historical scrutiny very well, and it really just falls apart under grammatical, contextual scrutiny. For one, think of a passage like Ephesians 5.18, which says, Don't get drunk with wine, which leads to reckless living, but be filled with the Spirit. Now, of course, the word there for wine is our word oinos, which is the same word for wine in 1 Timothy 3.8, just two chapters ago from our focus passage today, where Paul writes, Deacons, likewise, should be worthy of respect, not hypocritical, not drinking a lot of oinos, not greedy for money. Clearly, both of these passages are discussing fermented wine, which can lead to drunkenness, and they are using the word oinos. Similarly, Titus 2.3 also suggests that older women should not drink too much wine using the same word oinos. Thus, I believe it's very difficult to make the case that oinos always refers to unfermented wine or even often refers to unfermented wine. Indeed, since the Greek New Testament frequently discusses, quote, new wine and clearly has a Greek Greek phrase for new wine, I believe it's far more likely that most, if not all, uses of the term oinos in the Bible refer to wine that could potentially intoxicate somebody. It would just be really weird for Paul to be writing a letter to Timothy and in in the first part of it to say, make sure deacons don't drink too much intoxicating wine. And in the second part of it, just a few lines down, say, hey, be sure you drink unintoxicating wine. And, And he uses the same exact word. You can see where that would cause quite a bit of confusion. So in my mind, such grammatical and contextual reading makes option number one Highly unlikely. Which brings us to our second or third option. Is wine in the Bible much the same as modern wine, or does Bible wine have less alcohol overall than modern wine? Now, I've researched this question quite a bit, not enough to be an expert on it, but the answer is a little dodgy to come by for obvious reasons. I mean, we don't have any samples of biblical wine, and even if we did, we wouldn't maybe be able to tell exactly how much alcohol was in it after so many years. 
It does seem, however, that there are several historical references to wine being diluted by water at some point after the Old Testament, and that was done either to purify the water or to make the wine last longer or be less potent or really all three of those things. Regardless, it's kind of difficult to be definitive. My best guess, given the evidence, as a non-expert on ancient wine and alcoholic beverages, but my best guess is that New Testament wine contain less alcohol than most modern wines. It does not appear that first century Jews, Romans, or Greeks would have had access to distilled beverages in addition, so it's almost impossible that the writers of the Greek New Testament even knew about stronger and more intoxicating beverages than wine, like what we would call whiskey, brandy, vodka, etc. now. But here's the thing. I am pretty sure that you could get drunk on New Testament or Old Testament wine without having to drink like 10 bottles of it. And I'm just going to be honest with you. Um, I don't know a lot about drinking, period. And it's not because I'm a saint or a pastor or anything like that. I drink a lot of soda. I drink coffee. I drink tea. I grew up in a household where my parents drank wine. I've just never liked it very much. I love like Welch's white grape juice. Man, I could drink a whole gallon of that stuff. It is so good. But like even the best of wines, they kind of give me heartburn. I don't really like the taste. There was a time where I was 15, 20 years ago where all this research came out about how healthy wine was. I even tried to start drinking some of it, and I don't even think it lasted a whole bottle because it's just yuck to me. So honestly, I'm not sure how much wine you need to drink to get drunk. I, just based on the alcohol, the, the percentage of alcohol in a bottle or so, I would say, you know, a man would probably feel it if he drank a whole bottle of wine, I guess, remembering that I'm no expert. But if New Testament wine was just that much more watered down, I don't see it very likely that New Testament people or Old Testament people would have access to like several bottles of wine to get drunk with. So again, my best guess is you can get intoxicated on oinos and you can get intoxicated on Old Testament wine, but it's probably more diluted than what we have in modern times. So where does that leave us? Can Christians drink wine? I believe the answer is a bit complicated. Here's the thing. The Bible does not forbid drinking wine in most cases. In case you can't tell from the inflection in my voice, the key part of that sentence is the last part, in most cases. The most important and critical thing to remember about drinking really anything in terms of what the Bible says is the oft-repeated prohibition or forbidding of uh, in the Old Testament and the New Testament about being drunk. Being drunk is a big thing in terms of the Bible. And so I've got a few verses to read to you about being drunk. Trust me, I didn't put all of them in there. It would take an hour. But for instance, we've already talked about Ephesians 5.8. Don't get drunk with wine, which leads to reckless living, but be filled with the Spirit. Proverbs 23.21 For the drunkard and the glutton will become poor, and grogginess will clothe them in rags. Luke 21.34, be on your guard so that your minds are not dulled from carousing, drunkenness, and worries of life. 
or that day, his return, will come on you unexpectedly. Matthew 24, 48-50 But if the wicked servant says in his heart, My master is delayed, and starts to beat his fellow servants, and eats and drinks with drunkards, that servant's master will come on a day he does not expect him, and in an hour he does not know. Matthew 24, 48-50 Romans thirteen thirteen. Let us walk with decency as in the daytime, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual impurity and promiscuity, not in quarreling and jealousy. 1 Corinthians 5.11 But actually, I wrote you not to associate with anyone who claims to be a brother, says Paul, or sister, and is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater, or verbally abusive, a drunkard, or a swindler. Don't even eat with such a person. And most soberingly, Galatians 5.19-21, which says, Now the works of the flesh are obvious, sexual immorality, moral impurity, promiscuity, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambitions, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, carousing, and anything similar. I'm warning you about these things as I warned you before that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 and 10, don't you know that the unrighteous will not inherit God's kingdom? Don't be deceived. No sexually immoral people, idolaters, adulterers, males who have sex with males, no thieves, greedy people, drunkards, verbally abusive people or swindlers will inherit God's kingdom. Now understand, I didn't quote every negative thing in the Bible about getting drunk. There's just a lot in there. It's not funny to get drunk. It's not anything to toy around with from a Bible view. If you think it's funny, you've probably never known an alcoholic or seen a family torn apart by alcoholism. Christians may not drink wine to get drunk, and they might may not drink wine unto drunkenness. Now, how drunkenness is defined, we don't know, but quite clearly a change in feeling, thinking, and behavior is involved. I don't think it's wise to endeavor to walk up right up to the line of sin and get as close as possible without going over. Now, one other caveat about drinking. We're not allowed to drink in terms of getting drunk. But also, and this one might be a little bit different, difficult for us Westerners to grasp, Christians aren't supposed to drink if it causes other people to stumble. Now, this doesn't literally mean that it makes them trip and fall over, but that it might be a temptation to them or it might make them upset, or it might make them angry, or whatever. Now, you might be thinking, well, you know what? That's their problem. I have liberty. Well, spoken like a true Westerner, I'd say, but that's not what the Bible teaches us. If my liberty hurts somebody else, or makes them stumble, or makes them upset, or whatever, then I, myself, am disallowed from engaging in my liberty. So why is that? Is it to impinge on my freedom? Well, no, it's really not, but it's rather to protect the conscience and the walk of my brother or sister, which is, according to the Bible, more important than my own freedom. So therefore, we get a passage like Romans chapter 14, 13 through 23, which says, Therefore, let us no longer judge one another. Instead, decide never to put a stumbling block or pitfall in the way of your brother or sister. I know and I'm persuaded, says Paul in the Lord Jesus, that nothing is unclean in itself. Still, to someone who considers a thing to be unclean, to that one it is unclean. For if your brother or sister is hurt by what you eat, you're no longer walking according to love. Don't destroy by what you eat someone for whom Christ died. Therefore, do not let your good be slandered. 
For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever serves Christ in this way is acceptable to God and receives human approval. So then, let us pursue what promotes peace and what builds up one another. Do not tear down God's work because of food. Everything is clean, but it is wrong to make someone fall by what he eats. It is a good thing not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that makes your brother or sister stumble. Whatever you believe about these things, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who does not condemn himself by what he approves, but whoever doubts stands condemned if he eats because his eating is not from faith, and everything that is not from faith is sin. So, Romans 14 is honestly one of the most practical, underrated, and important biblical passages there is. If we all paid more attention to Romans 14, there would be a lot more peace and unity in the world, and especially in the church. Now, I believe that most Christians have the liberty to drink wine according to the Bible. As I said, they must not get drunk, whether in private or in public. No exceptions to that rule. They also must not cause another person to stumble because of what is eaten or drink. If eating meat causes a vegetarian to stumble, says Paul, then don't eat meat around them. I think you can still do it at home or when they're not around, but don't eat meat around a vegetarian. If drinking wine causes somebody to stumble, then don't do it around them. I think you can still do it at home or when they are not around. Now, to our final question, should Christians drink wine? And here's the thing. I don't believe I'm allowed to answer that question based on Romans 14.22. Whatever you believe about these things, keep between yourself and God. And in fact, I actually hope just talking about this issue today doesn't transgress that passage. The bottom line is this. Whatever your view on wine or my view on wine, we have to avoid getting drunk and we have to avoid causing other people to stumble. Are you a teetotaler, which is a word that means somebody that doesn't drink any intoxicated beverages? Great, but don't cause a Christian non-teetotaler to stumble and don't condemn him with your view. You're not his master. Are you a non-teetotaler? In other words, do you occasionally drink without getting drunk some wine? Great, don't cause a Christian teetotaler or non-drinker to stumble or beat him over the head with your view, and don't drink around him out of respect and love for him or her and their views. Peace and unity, according to Romans 14, are far more important than our beverage of choice. So I'll end the discussion with that. It's not really about the wine. You definitely avoid drunkenness in every case, in every situation. But what it's really about is not eating or drinking. It's about peace and unity and building up the kingdom and edifying your brother or sister, and not causing your brother or sister to stumble. Hopefully, we can all walk in that and bring about unity by our opinions and what we believe and how we talk about what we believe. All right, let's go to Leviticus 20, verse 1. The Lord spoke to Moses, say to the Israelites, any Israelite or alien residing in Israel who gives any of his children to Molech must be put to death. The people of the country are to stone him. I will turn against that man and cut him off from his people because he gave his offspring to Molech, defiling my sanctuary and profaning my holy name. But if the people of the country look the other way when that man gives any of his children to Molech and do not put him to death, then I will turn against that man and his family and cut him off from their people, both him and all who follow him in prostituting themselves with Molech. Whoever turns to mediums or spiritists and prostitutes himself with them, I will turn against that person and cut him off from his people. 
Consecrate yourselves and be holy, for I am the Lord your God. Give my statutes and do keep my statutes and do them. I am the Lord who sets you apart. If anyone curses his father or mother, he must be put to death. He has cursed his father or mother. His death is his own fault. If a man commits adultery with a married woman, if he commits adultery with his neighbor's wife, both the adulterer and the adulteress must be put to death. If a man sleeps with his father's wife, he has violated the intimacy that belongs to his father. Both of them must be put to death. Their death is their own fault. If a man sleeps with his daughter-in-law, both of them must be put to death. They have acted perversely. Their death is their own fault. If a man sleeps with a man as with a woman, they have both committed a detestable act. They must be put to death. Their death is their own fault. If a man marries a woman and her mother, it is depraved. Both he and they must be burned so that there will be no depravity among you. If a man has sexual intercourse with an animal, he must be put to death. You are also to kill the animal. If a woman approaches any animal and mates with it, you are to kill the woman and the animal. They must be put to death. Their death is their own fault. If a man marries his sister, whether his father's daughter or his mother's daughter, and they have sexual relations, it is a disgrace. They are to be cut off publicly from their people. He has had sexual intercourse with his sick sister. He will bear his iniquity. If a man sleeps with a menstruating woman and has sexual intercourse with her, he has exposed the source of her flow, and she has uncovered the source of her blood. Both of them are to be cut off from their people. You must not have sexual intercourse with your mother's sister or your father's sister, for it is exposing one's own blood relative. Both people will bear their iniquity. If a man sleeps with his aunt, he has violated the intimacy that belongs to his uncle. They will bear their guilt and die childless. If a man marries his brother's wife, it is impurity. He has violated the intimacy that belongs to his brother. They will be childless. You are to keep all my statutes and all my ordinances and do them, so that the land where I am bringing you to live will not vomit you out. You must not follow the statutes of the nations I am driving out before you, for they did all these things, and I abhorred them. And I promised you, you will inherit their land, since I will give it to you to possess, a land flowing with milk and honey. I am the Lord your God, who sets you apart from the peoples. Therefore you are to distinguish the clean animal from the unclean one, and the unclean bird from the clean one. Do not become contaminated by any land animal, bird, or whatever crawls on the ground. I have set these apart as unclean for you. You are to be holy to me, because I, the Lord, am holy, and I have set you apart from the nations to be mine. A man or a woman who is a medium or spiritist must be put to death. They are to be stoned. Their death is their own fault. Psalm chapter 25. Lord, I appeal to you. My God, I trust in you. Do not let me be disgraced. Do not let my enemies gloat over me. No one who waits for you will be disgraced. Those who act treacherously without cause will be disgraced. Make your ways known to me, Lord. Teach me your paths. Guide me in your truth and teach me, for you are the God of my salvation. I wait for you all day long. Remember, Lord, your compassion and your faithful love, for they have existed from antiquity. Do not remember the sins of my youth or my acts of rebellion. In keeping with your faithful love, remember me because of your goodness, Lord. The Lord is good and upright, therefore he shows sinners the way. He leads the humble in what is right and teaches them his way. All the Lord's ways show faithful love and truth to those who keep his covenant and decrees. Lord, For the sake of your name, forgive my iniquity, for it is immense. Who is this person who fears the Lord? He will show him the way he should choose. He will live a good life, and his descendants will inherit the land. The secret counsel of the Lord is for those who fear him, 
and he reveals his covenant to them. My eyes are always on the Lord, for he will pull my feet out of the net. Turn to me and be gracious to me, for I am alone and afflicted. The distresses of my heart increase. Bring me out of my sufferings. Consider my affliction and trouble and forgive all my sins. Consider my enemies. They are numerous and they hate me violently. Guard me and rescue me. Do not let me be put to shame, for I take refuge in you. May integrity in what is right watch over me, for I wait for you. God, redeem Israel from all its distress. Ecclesiastes 3 verse 1, there is an occasion for everything and a time for every activity under heaven, a time to give birth and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to uproot, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to tear down and a time to build, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance, a time to throw stones and a time to gather stones, a time to embrace and a time to avoid embracing. Hmm. A time to search and a time to count as lost. A time to keep and a time to throw away. A time to tear and a time to sow. A time to be silent and a time to speak. A time to love and a time to hate. A time for war and a time for peace. What does the worker gain from his struggles? I have seen the task that God has given the children of Adam to keep them occupied. He has made everything appropriate in its time. He has also put eternity in their hearts, but... No one can discover the work God has done from beginning to end. I know that there is nothing better for them than to rejoice and enjoy the good life. It is also the gift of God whenever anyone eats, drinks, and enjoys all his efforts. I know that everything God does will last forever. There is no adding to it or taking from it. God works so that people will be in awe of him. Whatever is, has already been, and whatever will be, already is. However, God seeks justice for the persecuted. I also observed under the sun there is wickedness at the place of judgment and there is wickedness at the place of righteousness. I said to myself, God will judge the righteous and the wicked since there is a time for every activity and every work. I said to myself, this happens so that God may test the children of Adam and they may see for themselves that they are like animals. For the fate of the children of Adam and the fate of animals is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath. People have no advantage over animals since everything is futile. All are going to the same place. All come from dust and all return to dust. Who knows if the spirits of the children of Adam go upward and the spirits of animals go downward to the earth. I have seen that there is nothing better than for a person to enjoy his activities because that is his reward. For who can enable him to see what will happen after he dies? First Timothy chapter 5, verse 1. Don't rebuke an older man, but exhort him as a father. Younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, and the younger women as sisters with all purity. Support widows who are genuinely in need. But if any widow has children or grandchildren, let them learn to practice godliness toward their own family first and to repay their parents For this pleases God. The widow, who is truly in need and left all alone, has put her hope in God and continues night and day in her petitions and prayers. However, she who is self-indulgent is dead even while she lives. Command this also so that they will be above reproach. But if anyone does not provide for his own family, especially for his own household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. No widow is to be enrolled on the list for support unless she is at least 60 years old has been the wife of one husband, and is well known for good works. That is, if she has brought up children, shown hospitality, washed the saints' feet, helped the afflicted, and devoted herself to every good work, but refused to enroll younger widows, for when they are drawn away from Christ by desire, 
they want to marry and will receive, therefore, condemnation because they have renounced their original pledge. At the same time, they also learn to be idle. Going from house to house, they are not only idle, but also gossips and busybodies saying things they shouldn't say. Therefore, I want younger women to marry, have children, manage their households, and give the adversary no opportunity to accuse us. For some have already turned away to follow Satan. If any believing woman has widows in her family, let her help them. Let the church not be burdened so that it can help widows in genuine need. The elders who are good leaders are to be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, Do not muzzle an ox while it is treading out the grain, and the worker is worthy of his wages. Don't accept an accusation against an elder unless it is supported by two or three witnesses. Publicly rebuke those who sin so that the rest will be afraid. I solemnly charge you before God in Christ Jesus and the elect angels to observe these things without prejudice, doing nothing out of favoritism. Don't be too quick to appoint anyone as an elder, and don't share in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. Don't continue drinking only water, but use a little wine because of your stomach and your frequent illnesses. Some people's sins are obvious, preceding them to judgment, but the sins of others surface later. Likewise, good works are obvious, and those that are not obvious cannot remain hidden. Well, brothers and sisters, I hope that the Word of God has built you up and encouraged you today. I encourage you to look to Jesus, think of Him, ponder Him, let Him lead you and guide you and comfort you with His words. May the Lord bless you and keep you. Good day to you, and Godspeed.